If you would like to earn CPE credit for listening to the show, visit earmarkcpe.com, download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Now on to the show. From Data Rails, this is FPNA Today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FPNA Today. I am your host, Paul Barnhurst, aka the FPNA Guy, and you are listening to FPNA Today. FPNA Today is brought to you by DataRails, financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. Every week, we welcome a leader from the world of financial planning and analysis and discuss some of the biggest stories and challenges in the world of FPNA. We will provide you with actionable advice about financial planning and analysis. This is going to be your go-to resource for everything FPNA. I am thrilled to welcome today's guests on the show. Today I have with me Aviv Kanani, who's the uh, VP of Marketing for DataRails, and Christian Wittig, who also works for DataRails. Welcome to the show, Aviv. Hey, great to be here, Paul. Welcome, Christian. Thanks for having me, Paul. Yeah, no, thank, thank you both for joining me. And Christian, thanks for being the first return guest that we've had. Thank you. So just a little bit about them, and then I'll give them an opportunity to you know, introduce themselves with a little more detail. But Aviv is coming to us from Tel Aviv. He earned his MBA from Duke University. He teaches startup marketing at a local university, and he's also led marketing for several startups. Christian comes to us from New York City. He uh, runs a successful FP&A training program called the FP&A Bootcamp and also works for DataRails. He's worked with customers, does some training stuff as well. And he has over a decade of FP&A experience working in industries, including consumer goods and uh, subscription businesses. So Aviv, maybe you could start by just telling us a little bit about, a little more about yourself and how you ended up where you're at. Awesome. Uh, sounds good. So actually, uh, not everyone knows that. I've actually started in politics in Israel, I was an advisor to a minister in the Israeli government. Uh, I later was an advisor, uh, sorry, I was a director of uh, communications to a member of parliament. And uh, that's where I really started in all my uh, so-called marketing PR career. But I quickly understood that uh, if I really want to learn, you know, the best uh, about marketing, I need to go to the private sector. So I moved to the States, did my MBA at Duke, which has a great marketing program. During my time there, I uh, interned at Lenovo and IBM. Started working for IBM, actually, as a social media manager in New York. Then got the opportunity to uh, move to Austin, Texas, and lead a content marketing team. Moved up the ranks there, and then my final role at IBM, I was a program director at IBM, doing everything that has to do with like uh, paid media. And eventually, I decided, you know, after having two kids, actually, like one was born in New York, one in Texas, so maybe there's going to be some kind of future rivalry there. Uh, I decided to move back to uh, Israel, to where you know all the grandparents are. But you know, I stayed uh, with uh, startups that focus on the North American market. So with the online marketing company. Later, I was a VP marketing at a startup called Workies. And about a year or so ago, I joined uh, Data Rails. Like actually, like the founder, Al Cohen, approached me and said, "Like, let's talk." And it's something one you know you can't ignore. You already built like a, a unicorn startup called uh, WalkMe. It's, already publicly traded and this is like hopefully it's going to be his second unicorn you know the moment i started i just saw how like uh 
exactly like Yael said, there was amazing product market fit in terms of uh, what the data reels does and the need, you know, for FBNA professionals. We started running some marketing campaigns with really any marketing people on the team and still it performed amazingly. So we quickly grew the team. The company grew a lot in the past year. We're doing a lot of uh, fun marketing stuff like uh, also sponsoring this podcast. And yeah, I'm uh, really happy to be here. And as you can understand, you know, from doing an MBA, I actually have some uh, friends in finance, like uh, I must admit. Yeah, so really excited to be here. Good. We're, we're glad to have you. And we're glad that you have some friends in finance, that we're not all enemies. Even, even by the way, even Shruti, that was one of the guests uh, recently on your podcast. It's my friend from business school. Wait, which guest? Shruti. Shruti Lanka. Oh, yeah. Shruti Lanka. Okay. Yeah, I got it. Oh, short, small world. She did go to, I remember saying she went to Duke. That's uh, definitely a small world. Exciting. All right, Christian, why don't you go ahead and give us a little bit more about your background? Yeah, I'm originally from Germany. That's where I grew up and where I have my accent from. And uh, I started my career there at P&G. It's a large consumer goods company. But I knew eventually I would end up in the States because uh, my wife, my then fiance is from, is from the States. And so after four years, I just said, okay, now is the time, now or never. I quit my job. I came over here without anything. We drove from San Francisco all the way to New York City through the southern states. Beautiful, if you ever get the chance to to do that. And I was very fortunate that I was able to start working at Unilever in the FP&A team. Unilever is a large consumer goods company. Maybe you know brands like... Briars, Magnum, you know, an ice cream, Ben and Jerry's or Dove and um, body lotion, shower gels, etc. And I was fortunate that I had the chance to work at several different FP&A roles. And then I also moved into leadership roles. And my last role there was leading the FP&A and the accounting team for the logistics finance department there. And then I also did my MBA. I did it at Stern. And when I talked to people during my MBA, you know, they told me that if you've never worked at a startup before, or especially in tech, you should, because you'll see that decisions are being made a lot faster. And that's definitely something that resonated with me because at a large multinational company like Unilever, you know, whenever you make a recommendation, you want to, you know, change a process, et cetera, the local team has to approve, the regional team has to approve, and then they have to convince the global team to make the change, right? So a lot of bureaucracy, long decision-making cycles. And so after my MBA, I was excited to get an offer from Squarespace. It's a website builder company. A late stage startup, you know, already 1,500 people. And we actually took it live while I was there. It was a fantastic, uh, sorry, we took it, we took it public while I was there, which was a fantastic opportunity and a fantastic place to be in the FPNA team. And we were doing all the, you know, game planning and prepping the CFO for speaking to analysts for the first time. I learned a lot there. Yeah, and then I moved to Data Rails, and Data Rails fascinated me because I what I enjoyed most about FPNA was has always been, you know, helping my business partners make better decisions, you know, through financial analysis, and also process optimization. You know, making the life a bit easier, making sure that not everything you're doing is manual. You know, helping them with Excel and stuff. And when I realized that there is a company that hires, you know, people with FP&A background, but my role at DataRails would be 
helping other companies get out of their manual processes, I immediately jumped on it. That's what DataRails does. We work with um, finance teams that are, you know, grounding in spreadsheets, and we help them automate the process and, and work through that. And around the same time, I also started my education, online education business on the side. FBNA Bootcamp is the course. And uh, I did that because when I was onboarding, you know, new direct reports on my team, I realized that learning FPNA from scratch is difficult because there's a lot that they don't cover at university. And at the same time, I realized that I really enjoy teaching. And so it really was a no-brainer to go and try and see if I can build a course where I can teach FPNA, you know, to to others through the internet. And that that's what I've been doing for over a year now. Great. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for both of you, you know, sharing a little bit about more about yourself, just so our audience is aware. You know, in this episode, we're going to talk a fair about, about marketing. That's why we brought in a marketing person and how finance and marketing work together. But before we jump into that part of it, I have a few more questions. So I'm curious, Aviv, how did you and Christian first connect? I mean, how did that happen that he ended up at DataRails with you? So yeah, it's a cool story, but based on what you said, the theme of this uh, podcast is like marketing and finance. So actually, you know, when I started like in DataRails, I quickly decided that we don't want to, want to be like yet another B2B uh, company that's like boring to boring and do the regular, you know, boring webinars, white papers and so on. And I wanted to get in touch, you know, with influencers in the field of FPNA. Apparently there are influencers in FPNA who would have, you know, imagined that. So, you know, I got to speak with you, Paul. I got to also like uh, speak with Christian. And actually in one of my visits, you know, to our New York office, uh, I reached out to Christian. I said, okay, let's uh, have lunch. Let's talk. I noticed, you know, Christian, based on like the great uh, content that he posts uh, regularly, like on LinkedIn and also with the FBNA bootcamp where we started to, uh, to partner on. You know, we met for lunch, had a great discussion. And like during lunch, I said, like, you know, maybe like you should meet the team, learn more about what we do like in our startup. So, you know, we very spontaneously, we just went into our office. Christian met, you know, our Sloan, our uh, director of customer success, Jonathan, our director of pre-sales. They hit it off, had a great conversation from here to there. All of a sudden, you know, like uh, Christian uh, joined the company. So, uh, yeah, well, luckily we had that lunch. Great. No, and I can see where that started with the boot camp. Sounds like uh, worked out really well for both of you and great situation. So I appreciate that answer. And kind of, you know, speaking of boot camp, when we first met, how is that going now for you, Christian? How's kind of the progress been coming on the boot camp? You know, when I launched it for the first time a bit over a year ago, I really had no expectations, right? I had no idea how many people would be interested in doing that. I had no idea if people would like it, right? But I was really positively surprised by the response. I've been doing it for a bit over a year, and I just had my 200th student this year. And it's always, what I enjoy about it is it's live over Zoom, you know, so I can see in people's eyes when they when they get it, right? When the eyes light up and they're like, okay, I get what you mean. I get how I can apply it. And that's just super motivating. 100% with you on that. I love when I'm training somebody, whether it be Excel or the FP&A courses I have, and you can see the light bulb go on and that they've really understood something and that it will make a difference. That's always really rewarding. So that's probably my favorite part of teaching live as well. So thank you for sharing that. So Aviv, this question is for you. I'm curious. What attracted you to, you know, marketing for startups? You've led marketing at several startups. Why startups versus, you know, IBM where you started? Yeah, I think it's similar to what Christian said also from the finance side. He said, uh, you know, like people were telling him, try startups. 
So I worked for IBM for four years and it was nice. You know, I was doing different roles, managing teams, but at the end of the day, you know, when reading like books about this uh, marketing or following, you know, thought leaders in the space, I just felt I'm not doing the same thing because, you know, when you work with a big company, you're doing something very, like very niche, something very specific, don't see the full perspective. So I decided, you know, like uh, maybe the salary isn't going to be as good or like the job protection is going to be as good, but let's go for it. And yeah, the last couple of years, you know, I've been, sorry, last couple of jobs, I've been just working like in the small startups. First, I was in a startup that went from around A to around B. Now the same thing here with uh, data rails, being on this roller coaster of like hyper growth startups that, you know, invest a lot of money in and like you need to quickly do everything in marketing, whether it's, you know, like uh, building the website, starting, you know, paid media channels, product marketing, you know, working with influencers, doing podcasts, uh, building a brand, you know, calculating, you know, the CAC to LTV, like stock, like finance terms, uh, you know, payback period, like all of a sudden, like you feel, you know, you're much more engaged. You feel like you're making more of an impact as opposed to like, if you were in a big company that maybe you can impact like on paper, or, like what's called like on Excel, like uh, it seems like, you know, millions, tens of millions of dollars are moving around based on everything you do, but it's still just an Excel. It, it's not the same feeling as if you're in a small startup and every sale is like a celebration. Everything that you're able like to figure out and like every process you're able to do better really can make a dent. So I'm super happy now, like uh, at startups and especially here at Data Rails. Thank you for sharing that answer. And I can see where the, the attraction comes to startups. There's a lot of fun. And I really liked how you mentioned, right, the reward. You can immediately see that impact. You celebrate a sell versus, oh, I saw something on Excel file this month and it looks like we've done better, right? It's just a different, you get a, a much closer to the action, so to speak. Yeah, I can, I can share that, you know, like in IBM, like we're talking about sales cycles for over a year. So we used to do like huge events, like Mobile World Congress in Barcelona. It was fun. But like at the end of the day, like you look at the numbers and you know, like you're influencing some kind of part of the buyer decision that can take like over a year. And a data reels, like usually the sales cycles is less than a month, sometimes even just a few weeks. So like being able to see like, okay, I did an action now. In a few weeks, they see the result. That's awesome. That's just... Fun. Agree. You know, having started my own business and seeing the times where you see, you know, something you do actually have a quick result. Very satisfying. So I have a question for you. You know, obviously there's been kind of uh I think a reputation out there between marketing and finance that there's friction at times. You know, it seems that a lot of business leaders, in particular marketing, are hesitant about working closely with finance, you know, particularly around budget season. So I just want to get some of your thoughts. Why do you think that is? Why do you think you know, kind of marketing and finance sometimes seem to be at odds and a little bit of friction there. Yeah, let's make it interesting, uh, right? Like this is a podcast being listened to, uh, especially by finance people. So I'll be happy to share like the other side. Yeah, first of all, you know, like we as marketers, we believe, you know, we know best and I'm sure finance people I think they know best as well. So it's very hard to just say like, okay, I can rely on someone else in the C-suite to tell me like how to do my job better. And there is also the challenge, you know, I've been listening to a lot of episodes in the podcast and reading about that, according to also a lot of research that, you know, CFOs and people in the finance department, they want to be uh, business partners and they want to feel that, you know, like, they're really supporting other decision makers in the company, like the CMO in my case, or like uh, any other, like the chief product officer, or any other, like, uh, or sales, any other position. The problem is, and this is like, I'm sharing, opening my heart here as like the marketing side, that we're not always sure that like the finance people have our best interests at heart, because sometimes, and this happened to me in a previous startup, you know, the finance person or the CFO figures out something doesn't make sense. He goes to the CEO, gets credit as showing you see the CMO is spending all this money on this thing and it doesn't make like any sense. Like where are the results? 
And then the CEO comes, you know, to me asking, okay, what are you doing here? It doesn't make sense. And I think, uh, first of all, sometimes they make good points, but sometimes I don't think like the CFOs see, you know, the full picture. And I think it's like a misalignment of interest that, you know, at the end of the day, like, uh, it's not that, you know, the finance department reports to marketing or sales or anything like that. It's like, you need to work together for the best thing to do, you know, for the business. But sometimes, you know, everyone has, you know, their own interests at heart and, you know, they want to show, you know, the CEO that you're smart, that you're able, you know, to figure things out and save money, especially during, you know, times like this. So yeah, it's a friction. So I think my recommendation for finance people listening is like build that honest relationship with, you know, business partners that, you know, they can trust you and they won't feel that, you know, the first thing you're going to do once you figure out a problem is run to the CEO and say like, hey, look, you know, they don't know what they're doing. Like, let's uh, cut that budget. Christian, you said, you know, that honest trust relationship. I think you know something about that. Did you give a speech about that at AFP? <laughs> yeah, I, I talked about trust, gave a speech there, but I want to touch on what, what Arif mentioned is uh, because I think he's absolutely right that sometimes incentives can be slightly different, right? Uh, finance, we're being told, okay, we have to look at the profit. No one else is looking at the profit. Marketing just wants to, so that's what sometimes we're being told, right? Marketing just wants to have as much money as possible so they can do as much as possible, you know, but that, that's not necessarily true. Often incentives actually aren't misaligned. People just think they are right? Based on, you know, limited information. And so based on my experience, what I learned as I partnered with marketing for very closely for a number of years is you have to earn that trust as a finance business partner. You have to show them that you want to do more than just cutting budgets or following up about month and close topics, right? Because that's sometimes the, the image we have because that's what we have to do, right? We can't get around that. That's just part of any finance role. You have to manage the budgets and follow up about correct accruals, et cetera. But we can do more. The challenge is that finance can only do more when we have enough information early enough. But the challenge is that marketing to share that information with finance makes them vulnerable. Right. Because we could go in and say, oh, this new marketing channel there, you're trying with TikTok. It really seems like it's not working. The RI doesn't seem to be there. Let's cut it. Right. And that's where we as finance people also need to be able to wear both hats and need to be able to, first of all, understand really what the goals are, because not every marketing asset that's getting put out there has the job of immediately turning a profit. Right. A lot of what the marketing team does is more long term. So it's about understanding really what the goals are of your market business partners and specifically the question that I like to ask them specifically is in an ideal world, what would you like to know about your business to make better decisions? And when would you like to know that? So I don't ask about metrics right away. I just ask them, what do you want to know about the business? What do you want to know earlier so you can make better decisions? And that then usually leads to something, you know, where they talk about, oh, if I only knew, you know, this, if I only had this data earlier or this analysis, and then you can go in and you can put that together, you can share that with them. And that's how you can show, you know, that you actually want to help them reach their goals rather than just managing budget and, and, and cutting costs. Thank you. I appreciate the answer there. And two things came to mind. One, you know, as you talked about, you know, often cutting budgets. I worked for a company where they were spending so little in one of the uh, businesses I supported for marketing that I had to go to bat to try to get them more. 
And yeah, I never, never had much success with the CFO in this company, but it was so bad that one of our salespeople came back and said, some people don't even think we're in the market anymore because we were spending so little on marketing. They weren't even aware we were still a product. And so that definitely gave me an appreciation for finding that right balance. Okay. Marketing really does need to spend. It works. You can't always attribute it directly, right? Like you may not be, like you said, the TikTok example or different things. You can't always say, this is what resulted in a sell but that doesn't mean it didn't have an impact. So, you know, talking to that, yeah, I, I really appreciate both the answers about building that trust, you know, talking to each other about what you need to do and making sure that you have that relationship. So you don't end up in a situation where they run to the CEO and then someone comes to Aviv's office and is like, wait, well, hey, why are you doing this? Instead of you knowing up front that they have some concerns and you've been able to discuss it with them first. You know what it is like. 13 different spreadsheets emailed out to 23 different budget holders, multiple iterations, version control, errors, back and forth updates. You never really feel in control of the consolidation and collection process. Yep, I've been there. Stop, breathe. DataRails is the financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. DataRails takes data from all your company's disparate sources. No organization is too complex, consolidating everything into one place, secured in the cloud. Now all your data finally talking to each other. Everything is automated back into your report in Excel. Cash flow, FX conversion, intercompany transactions, now automated and up to date. Drill down and variance analysis in seconds. Don't replace Excel, embrace Excel. Turn your Excel into a lean, mean FPNA machine. Find out more at www.datarails.com. Yeah, it's um, yeah, no, it's it's a it's a big challenge because I think especially for finance people, like you want to be able to see everything in Excel, you want to be able to measure everything, and it's not like just always possible. I think like marketing is still a mix of like a science and an art. And it's a matter of also, you know, of uh, trust that you need, like for marketers, you need to have like with the CEO or with, you know, the, the CFO that like maybe you need to allocate X amount of budget, you know, to first of all, reach your targets in terms of, you know, building a pipeline and revenue, but you always need to have like the other things that you just believe in them, even if it's very hard, you know, to, to measure. Yeah. And, you know, speak, yeah, that's, that's a great point that, that you're raising there, Arif, because um, as a finance person, as an FP&A uh, leader, even you're, you're always trying to make decisions based off of data, right? You're always trying to be as, as, as data focused as possible. But it also took me a little while to realize that when it comes to return on marketing investment, that's not always possible. It really is an art and a science. And that's simply... I think there's there's two reasons. Maybe that also helps understand the the, the listeners um, why that is the case. The first one is um, allocation and uh, understanding which part of your marketing mix of all the different activities that you're doing at the same time is delivering which return on investment. So, for example, you you may be able to measure how many um, clicks you're getting with your Google ads, for example. But if at the same time you're on a Facebook campaign or maybe even a TV ad, then it becomes really difficult to attribute 
um, how much each of those activities is actually contributing to your revenues. You know, so that can be really difficult. Yeah, I know. Like the, the point here, like you know, that we're talking like in marketing circles here is like we call it sometimes like dark shop social and so on. It's like think about it like if you just look at analytics. So the best sources I can share like in marketing that come to the websites are people that come like from Google or Gadget or uh, direct. Uh, that just come to your website or search for the word for us, like, for, like for example, the brand name, like Data Reels, come to our website and sign up. So in a way, if you would ask from a finance perspective what you should do, so what am I supposed to do? Invest more in Google Organic or like more in the website? No, like that's not the solution. The question is why did that person even think about searching for Data Reels or for my brand name? And it's not everything you can measure. Like how, how would you be able to know if, let's say, a few CFOs spoke about data reels like over dinner and decided, you know, one of them decided to check it out or maybe they were in some kind of a Slack community or they heard about it like in a podcast or something like that. Some things are measurable. Let's say like a Facebook ad, like you just click on it, but that's like the bad thing and the incentives that sometimes it makes you just want to invest in the things that are easily measurable as opposed to the things that might really make an impact, but it's very hard to measure. Exactly. And that becomes even a bigger issue when you're making decisions about how much to invest into direct response marketing. So that's marketing that where you're immediately looking for a purchase. And then brand investment, which is much more long term, right? Where you're building your your company's brand and hope that then later on that leads to people responding to your direct response marketing. And uh, the challenge is that brand investment is very difficult to to measure from a finance point of view. Because there, there is no immediate goal of immediately making a, a profit from that investment, right? It's more over the long term. It's setting a seed in, in people's head. And when the next time they're thinking about FBNA process automation, you know, data wells comes to mind. And what really convinced me that this is more an art than a science is um, when we did, um, when we did customer interviews and we asked them, so, okay, now you can tell us. Which of all these ads that you've seen convinced you to sign up? And they, they didn't even know. So if they don't even know, there's really not much data there to work with. So that's really where you have to find the balance when you're working in finance. So, you know, speaking to that, you made a lot of good points. There's obviously an art and a science. How do you recommend finance and marketing get on the same page of how to measure things, right? Because you have to measure performance, regardless of whether you can attribute everything into nice clean buckets, which obviously you can't. So how do you think about that alignment? Because for that's often a friction point. Marketing may be looking at things, you know, one way to say, hey, we think we're getting a good return. And finance may be looking at it a different way and saying, hey, we don't think you're getting a good return. So how do you get on the same page and make sure you know you're aligned around those metrics to determine, you know, if campaigns are working, if marketing is giving an ROI that makes sense for the company. What's your thoughts on that, Aviv? Yeah, so I would say that despite like everything we said, so we live in a world that you want to be able to measure. So you do want to first, like as a CMO, focus on things that are measurable that, you know, in terms of the CEO, they're asking, okay, I invested X amount of dollars here. How many SQL sales qualified leads it got? How many meetings? How many opportunities? how many sales, you want to be able to be really good at that. But I think if you're experienced enough and if you are able to deliver the results, you need to have this kind of relationship with your CEO and CFO and saying, I still need, I don't know, 10%, 20% of the budget. Just let me do things I believe in. 
It's harder to measure, but let's try doing it. I'll give you one example of how we're trying to measure it. Although, again, it's very difficult because, like I said, you know, the examples before, it's like, you know, if someone talks with another CFO or let's say like they're in a Slack community or something like that, you can't really measure it in terms of analytics. So what we do is uh, on our website, when you sign up on a form, we ask you, how did you hear about us? At the beginning, I actually had it like it's like a drop down menu, but we change it to free text because if someone says LinkedIn, sometimes it's even not enough. Like I want to know why LinkedIn, a LinkedIn ad, maybe a LinkedIn influencer, maybe an employee posted something. It's so it's very hard, you know, to do like big data on it, but it just adds a lot, you know, to the equation. So in addition to the form and the website, we also have our SDRs, you know, when they call someone, the sales development representatives, you know, after they sign up for a demo. We ask them to ask again, how did they hear about us? And sometimes they actually get different responses from what someone filled in a form. So, you know, we constantly try to measure it, although we know it's difficult uh, because at the end of the day, yeah, we want to know like uh, where to invest. And yeah, and sometimes we see like, yeah, this, I was in a dinner and CFO spoke about it or a Slack channel or I listened to this podcast and yeah, we're trying, we're constantly trying to do it, but it's very difficult. Yeah. I would imagine it's very difficult. Christian, any thoughts there? from your perspective, from the finance end of things? Yeah, yeah. So attribution on a low level of detail is difficult, but what you can do and what companies do is take marketing expenses at a high level, you know, customer acquisition cost, and then compare it to your lifetime value. That's a common ratio for subscription-based businesses. Your LTV, your lifetime value, should be three times as high as your customer acquisition cost if you're an early growing company. But then you can also look at other metrics. So for example, at Unilever, we also looked at working versus non-working media. So what it means is how much of your media budget is spent actually on to Google for launching the ad or to a TV channel for launching the ad that's working. And non-working is the money that goes into creating the ad, maybe agencies that you're working with, contractors, et cetera, and making sure that your non-working expenses aren't overproportional compared to the expenses that actually make your money. That's one. Another metric or non-financial metric we look at is we looked at is on time and in full. So when you're giving a brief that you want to, you know, have this story, you want this asset created, what's the percentage of those assets that actually get delivered on time and in full, right? By your agency partner or, you know, by your team. Because whenever an asset is delayed, that technically hurts your bottom line. And then a really important metric also is uh, asset wear out. So essentially, when you, you're spending a lot of time creating an ad, and then when you run it, you want to run it long enough so that until it starts to wear out, you know, until you're, you're saturating in the market. And many companies make the mistake of always going after the next shiny thing and creating another campaign and another campaign without making sure that the old assets are actually worn out. You know, you can work with analytics companies, market research companies that tell you whether your asset is worn out or not. Thank you for sharing. And I uh, managed FP&A for a marketing company. We marketed the automotive space. So really around service and sales, trying to get people to bring their car back to the dealership. You know, so there's a lot of response rate and different metrics. And we had, you know, multiple different channels. And it was always a lot of things you mentioned here, attribution, different challenges, you know, how often do you refresh things? Because we had a lot of where they could custom build them off catalogs, the different ads they wanted to do and special, you know, direct market campaigns, we call them on demand. And so I can relate to a lot of what you're saying there, Christian, and it's definitely can be a challenge at times. And Aviva, you look like you were about to say something there a minute ago. Uh, yeah, so I agree like with uh, everything you two mentioned. 
And again, it comes back, you were talking both of you about also like direct response and how to measure stuff. So of course, like a lot of the stuff like we do, and we have a large user acquisition team, whether in this company or previous companies I was at, like constantly A-B test, test stuff, see what works. But it's always a problem when you limit yourself just to things to uh, that are going to generate results now. And like in my start marketing class, I actually talk about it that, you know, think about it like dating. Imagine like you go on Tinder and all you do is send messages to girls saying like, do you want to get married? This is a PG version, of course. You want to get married, you want to get married. Like, this is not going to lead you, like, to where you want to be. Like, you need to start gaining, like, the interest. You want to get people to follow you. Like, you know, in the world of B2B, we say that within our target audience, probably 99% of the total addressable market are not ready to buy. Maybe 1% is. We can't only do ads for, like, direct response for that 1% that are going to click on it ask for a demo and become a, a new client. Like you have to play on the long-term game. You have to start conversation, whether it's engaging LinkedIn or podcasts or YouTube stuff and getting people to follow you, to start liking you, to want to follow the things that you're doing. And maybe eventually you're going to make the sale. It might take a six month, it might take a year, but then it makes it, you know, when we go back to finance, very hard to measure because you can't really measure like, you know, throughout a year, like all those little things that happen, especially if they didn't lead to actually a, a sign up or any like actionable thing that you can measure, but it's just the right thing to do. Like uh, it's very hard for both marketers and finance people to grasp that, you know, you just don't have that full control out of it. Yeah. So speaking to that, I saw a post from someone who was a chief marketing officer on LinkedIn in the finance space. And they're like, reminder, sales, you know, sales impacts the quarter. Marketing impacts the future quarters. Kind of that idea that you can't go to marketing a week before the quarter and, hey, we need your help in getting a bunch of sales. It's like it's a longer you know play than that. And it was a really good point. I really liked the way she kind of laid it out and it speaks to what you were talking about there. I think it goes back to also what you mentioned, and we spoke about it before, about the incentive system. We're talking about finance versus marketing. But actually, here's something both were like CMOs or CFOs. Like, you're measured in the results of this quarter. Like, so you want to do things that, you know, like the CEO or like if you're publicly traded, you know, the, the stockholders are going to be happy now. So it's very hard sometimes to say, yes, I'm willing to do something that's going to turn in results like maybe six months from now or a year. Because maybe I'm not going to be here if I don't like uh, deliver the results now. But again, if you don't do it, so maybe now you'll have a job. And in six months a year, if you didn't really invest in creating like good content and like a reason to follow you, then you're kind of in a tough spot if everything has to be direct response. Great point. And aligning those incentives is so important. And it's a challenge because often you're worried about the quarter and you're trying to figure out, okay, how do I help bring in some sales this quarter? But you know, it's a long-term play as well. So I think we had a good conversation there. Appreciate that. I want to shift gears just a little bit here and ask you, Aviv, what's it been like, you know, marketing to the FP&A community? Maybe how has that community been different from other industries you've worked in? Interesting. Actually, in my previous industry, it was very different. I was working at Workies in the field service management space. So it was like a CRM for locksmith garage door repair technicians, uh, plumbers, as you can imagine, kind of different than FBNA professionals. And I think like there, there's a plenty of things that are different. I think like, for example, like in our previous space, you know, we could post like things online and people like in like different Facebook groups and we've got like dozens of different answers and people would start debating and, you know, they have less of a sense of like what are other people thinking about them, maybe as opposed to like finance professionals or 
professionals in general. So it was fun. Even like when we sent marketing emails to people, yeah, like after COVID, we sent an email asking them like, how are you doing? Is everything fine? Like we got like heartwarming, like, you know, emails saying like, yeah, it's been a tough time. Like people were like opening up. And with finance, you know, people are a bit more conservative, you could say. But uh, they look much more like they want to see more of the facts. They want to read more. They want to look into more like uh, white papers and reviews. And they really want to make sure that, you know, you're less of uh, BSing in a way. Like really straight down like uh, the facts and actually like see the product as much as possible. Like in our ads, we try to show the product uh, as much as we can and you know doing like really high quality conversations and really delivering i think value uh, that's the main thing we noticed like i noticed like uh, finance professionals uh, are looking for thank you i appreciate that i'm curious christian you know similar type question for you but with the boot camp what have you found trying to market to fpna professionals because i'm sure that's very different than you know supporting marketing and support and being in the fpna role so what have you found yeah, yeah. I mean, going into this, I didn't know much about marketing at all, right? Really, just my background is an FP&A, of course. And in the beginning, it was tough because I was like, okay, I have this course here, but no one knows about it, right? So how can I show people what it's all about? And then if I put out a link and say, hey, you know, I, I do this free workshop to, you know, teach you something, and introduce the course, why would anyone do that? Why would anyone actually take an hour out of the day and join that? You know, that's how I thought in the beginning. And it took me a while to understand that, you know, it's all about building trust. It's actually very similar to working inside of a business. Is you when I started posting regularly on LinkedIn, you know, I posted almost every day and I just shared what I know just for free without any ask attached to it. And people started to see that, okay, this guy actually knows what he's talking about. And they got interested and they looked me up and they found my course website, you know, and that's how it all started. And I'm really fortunate that someone gave me that advice early on, you know, that nowadays it's not about spending a lot of money, you know, on ads. It's about showing people, proving to people essentially that they actually know what you're talking about. And from there, you know, I realized that I actually enjoy writing and I've been doing it ever since. Great. Thank you for sharing. And I totally agree with you, especially when you are the brand, right? A business of one, it's so important to be able to show you're qualified, that you know what you're talking about, to build that credibility. Because they're coming to you for training. And if they don't think you're qualified, right, they're not going to come to you. You've lost any chance of bringing in that customer. So that's a great point there. So appreciate both of you sharing a little bit about the uh, marketing to the FP&A community and how it's different. You know, so speaking of communities, I know you guys, DataRails recently launched an FP&A community. It's a Slack community. Aviv, can you maybe tell us a little bit about that? What led to launching that? Yeah, so uh, again, based on what I said before, like we really believe in like the long run, and uh, something we notice that's missing is in the world of FPNA, there's no like one place that I always try to figure out when I was talking with FPNA people or CFOs of where people can really share ideas about FPNA. So it, yeah, some people like, like you guys actually post like on LinkedIn, but it's more like a public forum, but there's no place where you can just like share ideas, really have open conversations, really debate maybe between different vendors or between best practices in a closed community where you feel safe. I have stuff like that, you know, for uh, marketing. So I thought, you know, it's worthwhile like to really open a community just for FPNA. Like, please, like Google it, go to FPNA, search for FPNA community, or go to the database website, and you'll be able to join it. 
And again, the goal is not sales at all. Like we really want to have online conversations. Like it's strictly forbidding to talk about any, you know, trying to uh, sell or market like any specific software. Yeah, so we already have like a few hundred people like that join. And, you know, we're trying to build it more and more. There's a lot of more room, you know, to to grow it. There, you know, I'm, I'm seeing like some interesting conversations are starting there. And I think it's uh, just the beginning because it just feels like something that the FBNA community really wants and needs and just something like was lacking in the industry. So, you know, hopefully it's going to be successful. So uh, we'll see with time. Great. like to see that grow. And just in case anyone didn't, you know, hear that, you can go to the DataRails website or just search FPNA community on Google and you'll find it. It's a Slack community. I know Christian's a member. I'm a member of it myself and seen some great conversations on there that people have had. So thanks for sharing a little bit about that and creating that for the community. I agree with you. It's something that it was good to have because we need those opportunities to connect and discuss things. So now we're going to move into a little bit more kind of the, I'd say the uh, personal part of our uh, podcast here. A couple of questions we ask all our guests and we'll start with the first one here and we'll give this one to you, Christian. Can you maybe tell us about an accomplishment as you look back on your career, something you use in a job interview that you're most proud of? Yeah. So I was in charge of the team at Unilever that manages the marketing expenses centrally. So it's like a center of excellence where we would, instead of partnering with just one team, we were responsible to managing the forecast and the budget for all of the marketing teams. And when I started that role, I was surprised to see that everything was done in Excel. A budget, I can't quote the exact numbers, but in the hundreds of millions that was managed in Excel was a bit shocking to me, right? And so I started a project where we wanted to replace that process with a proper tool, a proper FPNA tool. DataRails wasn't around back then. It was a while ago. Otherwise, of course, I would have <laughs> went that way. But it was a different tool. I'm not going to name it. But it was a fantastic opportunity for me to lead a project like that because I was responsible end-to-end. First, I had to get the budget for it. And the CFO originally wasn't convinced. Right, because you know it would save the finance team a lot of time. That's how I pitched it initially. It wasn't really that convinced. And then I, I talked to other senior leaders and tried to figure out, okay, what does the CFO actually really care about? And I realized that what he cares most about is financial controls. And so I approached him that way. And you know, it's true that when you move out of just vanilla Excel into a proper software, your financial controls are better because. You can't accidentally, you know, upload the wrong version or, you know, lose a file or get lost in email. And that ended up convincing him. And, you know, we got the budget. But then I thought, basically, then I thought the job was more or less, you know, done. We we found a vendor. We started the implementation process. But I realized that the job wasn't even close to done because now I had to convince the marketing team. And there were a few people there who, actually a number of people at the beginning, who were happy with the way things were managed before. You know, they understood their Excel files, they knew what they had to do, and they didn't want to switch to a different tool. They didn't want to learn, having to learn that, you know, they didn't want to go through the process. At the beginning, you know, I was just like emphasizing all the benefits, how it would save them time, etc. And it really didn't really ring true for them. And then I had the idea, okay, maybe let's grab two of the marketing managers who were most against the tool, who had the most criticism, and we actually brought them into the project team. So they were joining the the meetings with us, they were meeting with the vendor, and the vendor was very receptive to uh, changes that we were proposing to the tool, etc. And then once they became part of the experience, they 
completely changed, you know, because they realized that their voice was heard. They realized that we're actually trying to make the life easier, not just the life of finance. And then they became our best ambassadors. You know, they talked to the rest of their team. And in the end, people were fully on board and uh, it was a big success. So it was, uh, it was a really cool story. Thank you for sharing that, Christian. And I think there's a, a lesson in there in influencing, right? Bring in your detractors and make them part of the project. And it's amazing how quickly you can get buy-in and things go smooth because there's usually always one or two voices that are driving a lot of decisions. And if you get the right people along, you know, it makes things become a lot easier. So thank you for sharing that. There's a lot to learn there about partnering and influencing in that answer. So this next question is for you, Aviv. And this is one we like to ask everybody. Can you describe a time you experienced a you know, failure at work, something where it just didn't go as planned? You know, maybe a marketing campaign that was a disaster or project implementation. And then what did you learn from the experience? Like what was the takeaway of going through you know, that experience? Yeah, so I think like my answer can be maybe even a mix of this question and also the previous question you asked. So like in my previous role, when I started, like my success was within six months, I was able to reduce the cost of acquisition to a third of what it uh, was before. So that should have been like my success story. That was the question you asked. The problem was that we were still working like with lower budgets. And what happened is, you know, we started to increase the budgets more and more and more, you know, like the hyper growth mentality of like uh, 2020. And I think that the thing that we failed on is that we didn't have a strong enough product market fit. And, you know, the more we increase the budget, you know, it's like uh, drugs in a way you become addicted because every time you don't hit your target, you want to put more money in and more money in. And um, at some point, it just didn't make any more sense. And I think the problem was we were still trying to get into too many verticals at once, you know, with the same solution. In retrospect, I think we should have focused more on a specific vertical or waited until like the product would be a better fit for this vertical or another. And we were just trying to hammer it like too hard in and uh, just like it broke. Like we had to take at some point like a, a step back. And I think this like mentality of like spray and pray may have been maybe something that worked to some degree like in 2020 or even 2021. But uh, I think especially now, like when we're, you know, at the end of 2022 with our recession and everything, inflation and everything that's happening, I think all companies need to be smart. I think that's something I learned from and something that you know, we're doing also now, like in NetRails. Like, you know, we're understanding that sometimes it's the smart thing to do is like reduce, you know, the, your focus on like crazy growth in terms of growing responsibly. Like Christian said, like the CAC LTV, I'm looking at the payback period. If you want to do it the right way. Yeah, that's something uh, I learned, you know, from that failure in my previous company. It's funny when you said the pray and spray, it reminded me I worked at a large uh, bank and the conversation we had one time is you know, at the bank, we would point and point and point, like never shoot, right? Some people just pray and spray. And then we were talking about one of the main competitors, like their philosophy was just point and shoot, like, you know, kind of go for everything. It's like, we would never make a decision they were always jumping from thing to thing. And the reality is the answer is, you know, somewhere in the middle, there's times, small bets, you want to move quickly, but there's value, like you said, in that discipline and not getting caught up and having it be a drug, as you mentioned, right? Just keep spending and spending and spending. Yeah, I think it's like the incentive system, again, that we discussed in the past, like for marketing, it's like, you want to hit your revenue target. Like, you know, especially again, 2021 and times like that, you can't tell like your CEO, you know what, like, Let's 
uh, reduce like our targets. And the same thing, I think, for the CFO or the CEO, you can go to the board and say, you know what, we promised you X4 growth. You know what, let's do it more responsibly. Let's do it X2 and take it down a notch because the product isn't ready. And uh, I think uh, you always have to look at the incentives of specific individuals to understand, you know, uh, decision making. I fully agree with you. A lot of great points there. So this next question is one we like to ask. It's a personal question. And so it's what's something unique about you that, you know, we wouldn't find online that you can share with our audience. And Aviv, we'll start with you first. So I don't think finance is boring. I know like a lot of, you know, finance people might think that like marketers or salespeople would think it's boring, but I actually like that part of the job. I like creating budgets and working on forecasting and working, you know, with the CFO and planning, you know, for the next year, you know, all this kind of budget plans and doing different scenarios. And I do enjoy that part. So, you know, if you use like data rails for FP&A, like uh, syncs, so I actually use a tool called like uh, Funnel.io that syncs uh, to your Excel and updates it automatically with everything that's happening uh, within HubSpot and Salesforce and all your numbers in. And uh, yeah, also did my MBA. I have friends in finance, you know, I must admit no one's perfect. But uh, yeah, I enjoy finance. So that means Christian, he actually kind of likes us people. I mean, that's a good good thing, I guess. You know, we got to have a few marketing friends. So uh, Christian, how about you? What's something you can share with our audience? Yeah, so what a lot of people don't know is that I have a background in martial arts. So when I was a teenager, I did a lot of judo, you know, I have a brown belt in judo. And I also taught it to kids uh, as a teenager, as a judo coach. And uh, it actually ended up being a big factor in deciding to go down my path, you know, to study business and, you know, go into leadership path. Because, you know, we had this one kid in our class, in our judo class, that was very rude. You know, he would never do what we asked him to do. He would bother the other kids instead, you know. And we tried everything, my partner and I. We tried to make him do push-ups and let him run around so he can you know, get a bit more rid of his energy so he follows along more. None of that worked. You know, we talked to him. We talked to his parents. None of that worked. And then I thought, okay, let's try something different. And I, I went to him and I said, hey, you know, we have, we have a lot of kids here today. Do you maybe want to help us a bit and help us you know, as a co-coach? And told him, hey, maybe you can go over to those kids and you've done this for a while. You know how to do this technique. Maybe you can explain it to them. And he lit up and he went there and he explained it to those kids. And he was so excited about getting this, getting his job, you know, then seeing that we trust him do that, that he I've never seen something like that even ever since. You know, he he changed overnight. And from then on, you know, he was one of the best behaved kids that we had, you know, because he really felt empowered and he felt that we believe in him and <clears throat> it really opened my eyes to how much of an impact a good leader or a good mentor you know can have and that played a role definitely played a big role in, in my decision to study business and you know working towards a, a management role thank you for sharing that sounds like a very rewarding experience and a, you know, a reminder that you there's different ways you can reach people and bring them to accomplish great things when sometimes you don't think you can right went from being the problem child, so to speak, to being a great asset for you. I really appreciate that answer. So this next question is one of the favorites we have. We ask everybody this. We'll start with Aviv, because I'm pretty sure I know what Christian's answer is going to be. Aviv, what's your favorite Excel function, feature? Some. 
Summing up numbers is amazing. No, actually, like everyone else, I saw I was doing VLOOKUP. I'm listening to the episodes. I'm saying probably you finance people think like, all I know is like sum and average. No, but actually also like like uh, VLOOKUP, I think it's uh, great. Actually, like, you know, from listening to the previous episodes, like I, I think I need to ask Christian to teach me about index match. But, you know, one uh, step at a time. And based on what I mentioned before, I also love, you know, the different tools that do integration, not like Terras, but like I mentioned before, like Funnel.io or other ones, everything that can really automate what happens within Excel. I think that's really what makes Excel even, even better. Agree. There's a lot of great integrations out there. And, you know, Christian, first, last year, what do you think of VLOOKUP? I'm not a fan of VLOOKUP. So Paul and I had a, had a big discussion about that and, and on, on LinkedIn, also about XLOOKUP. And I'm index match, you know, through and through. And uh, I could probably talk for half an hour about how great index match is. You know, happy to, to do that with everyone. <laughs> we'll give you 30 seconds. <laughs> no, basically, index match, it's a dynamic cell reference, right? So it, it, if something changes in your source data, your index match won't show you a wrong number. But VLOOKUP does. And that's not even the worst thing about VLOOKUP. The worst thing about VLOOKUP is it shows you a different number than what you're looking for if your source data changes in the wrong way. And it doesn't even give you an error message. No, it just shows you a wrong number. So you may report a, a wrong result without even knowing it. And index match doesn't have these flaws. Index match just shows you a nice NA, you know, error when it can't do something. And that's why I'm a big index match fan. And this is the fun of asking this question. Everybody has a different opinion. Yeah, I, I like XLOOKUP myself and Power Query, but my view is use whichever one works for you. Just understand the pros and cons. If you know what you're doing and you're making sure you're checking your data and it's working, I'm all good with it but everybody has different views there. Well, first, I just want to thank both of you for being on the show today. We've really enjoyed the time here. I know I've enjoyed talking about marketing. I've learned some new things. You know, I haven't spent a ton of time supporting marketing, so I always enjoy these conversations. And just the last question I'm going to have for each of you, if someone wants to get in contact with you, you know, maybe learn more, what's the best way to connect? And we'll start with uh, you, Aviv, on this question. What would be the best way to connect with you? Yeah, I guess LinkedIn. LinkedIn is the best, you know, to connect with new people, professional networks. So yeah, reach out to me, Aviv Kanani. Of course, the data rails, you'll easily find me. I'm probably the only one with that name on LinkedIn. Yeah, I wouldn't imagine there's a lot, especially data rails. So thank you, Aviv Kanani. And Christian, how about you? What's the best way for someone to get in touch with you? Same here. You know, I'm on LinkedIn every day. So feel free to reach out there. Name is Christian Matic, also unique on LinkedIn, fortunately. So yeah, feel free to connect and um, happy to chat. Thank you for that, Christian. Thank you again, Aviv and Christian, for being on the show. And hope you guys uh, come back again sometime. We really enjoyed the conversation. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you very much, Paul. I really appreciate it. You're welcome.